when nuclear reactors are smack dab in the middle of the pathway of first Hurricane Harvey and now Hurricane Irma, but you are hearing nothing, nothing from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about what's going on, and the nuclear industry is not voluntarily shutting down its nukes ahead of these storms, when you hear Nancy Faust of Simply Info say, The NRC has ceded more and more rulemaking to the individual power companies that run the reactor. So instead of the NRC saying, if it's a Category 3 or above hurricane, you're shutting down ahead of it. That's not happening, but that would be a good start. Because then there's some way of knowing that, hey, this is severe enough that you need to act and you can't play chicken with it and then brag about it on the Internet. When you hear information like that, even as the winds and the tides are rising, you know that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we consider hurricanes past present and unfortunately future, and their impact on nuclear reactors in a discussion with Nancy Faust of Simply Info. We look back on how this year's handling of these major storms by official bodies that are supposed to be in charge of these things is very different from last year with Hurricane Matthew, as well as earlier problems with Hurricanes Camille and Andrew. And we also provide information on how you can help bring pressure to bear on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and Florida Power and Light to shut down the two nuclear facilities with four nuclear reactors that are in the likely pathway of megastorm Hurricane Irma. Plus, we will have numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear news from around the world, the duck and cover report, on the latest problems with our aging rust-bucket U.S. nuclear reactors, and more honest information than Florida Governor Rick Scott's media office wants to be able to share, at least with this reporter. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 5, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out the news this week in North Korea. To catch up with the back and forth, the United States and South Korea, as they do every year, have been staging intensive war games on the border with North Korea. North Korea fired a missile which went over Japan before crashing into the ocean. No one was harmed. And also staged its sixth nuclear test blast at its Pungyi-ri base on Sunday, September 3rd. 
to keep tensions roiling, the United States has now carried out its second test of a B-6112 gravity bomb, described as the most dangerous nuclear weapon ever produced. The bombs were inert, but they were dropped from an F-15E fighter jet at Tonopah Test Range in Nevada on August 8th, according to the National Nuclear Security Administration. No nuclear warhead was involved in that particular test, which was intended to check up on non-nuclear functions and the aircraft's ability to deliver the weapon. We are working on an interview to go over these issues in depth, but two quotes that I want to read. The first from former President Jimmy Carter. He said, The North Koreans emphasized that they wanted peaceful relations with the United States and their neighbors, but were convinced that we planned a preemptive military strike against their country. They wanted a peace treaty, especially with America, to replace the ceasefire agreement that had existed since the end of the Korean War in 1953. Sidebar. Legally, the Korean War still exists. It's just in suspended animation for now, but it has never been concluded. Back to the story. This is Jimmy Carter again. They wanted an end to the economic sanctions that had been very damaging to them during that long interim period. They have made it clear to me and others that their first priority is to assure that their military capability is capable of destroying a large part of Seoul, and of responding strongly in other ways to any American attack. A commitment to peace by the United States and North Korea is crucial. When this confrontational crisis is ended, the United States should be prepared to consummate a permanent treaty to replace the ceasefire of 1953. The United States should make this clear to North Koreans and to our allies. And Bob Alvarez, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, said, It's time to end the 67-year-old Korean War. The 1994 Agreed Framework was a non-proliferation pact that opened the door, but was obstructed and ultimately trashed by Republican neocons bent on regime change. Now, after 16 years, we face the prospect of a catastrophic war, which might be prevented by a nuclear arms control non-aggression pact with North Korea. It is too late to expect North Korea to relinquish its nuclear arms. That bridge was destroyed after the agreed framework was tossed, which provided an incentive and plenty of time for North Korea to amass a nuclear arsenal. We're working on an interview on this issue to go into it in much greater depth. In California... An agreement has been reached between the activist group Citizens Oversight and Southern California Edison over the removal of approximately 3.6 million pounds of nuclear waste from the permanently shuttered San Onofre nuclear reactors. Ray Lutz, founder of Citizens Oversight and an engineer, said, Leaving the spent fuel only 100 feet from the ocean with no other options being developed is simply unacceptable. However, there are a lot of moving and unresolved parts to this agreement. First is that moving the nuclear waste to a better location is not a done deal. Another question is, what is a better location? And how can the waste safely be transported? The agreement does not attempt to reach conclusions on the actual implementation plan, and there is already 
a wave of contradictory information coming out from many areas of the anti-nuclear movement. We're putting together a special on this, and when it's ready, you'll hear this from as many different perspectives as I can provide. Also in Southern California, the Los Angeles area, Boeing Corporation has broken a long-standing commitment to clean up contamination by radiological and toxic elements at the Santa Susana Field Laboratory. This after years of repeated promises to clean up the radioactive and toxic chemical contamination at its former nuclear and rocket testing facility. Groups that have spent decades working for the carcinogenic mess at the site to be remediated have expressed outrage. Boeing has long committed to cleaning up the Santa Susana Field Laboratory to a level that would be safe for people to live there, even though it said residences on the site weren't anticipated, in order to protect the tens of thousands of people who do live nearby and are at risk from migrating contamination. But Boeing has breached this promise and says instead it wants to leave a thousand times higher concentrations of contamination than it promised, so much that according to its own risk estimates, as many as 96 out of 100 people could get cancer from the remaining contamination if they lived at some areas of the site. A warning in Southern California, do not repeat, do not go rock climbing or hiking in Rocky Peak because that is Santa Susana Field Lab adjacent. In the midst of massive wildfires that are burning up the America Northwest and well into Canada, it has been discovered that a wildfire is burning in a former Nevada nuclear site. According to the Nevada National Security Site, the fire covers almost four square miles or 10 square kilometers in the western part of what used to be the Nevada test site. More than 1,000 nuclear detonations occurred on the 1,300-square-mile site between 1951 and 1992. The difficulty for residents in the area is that the burning re-releases radionuclides into the environment through smoke and ash. Nuclear contamination, the gift that keeps on giving, whether you want it or not. Time for the duck! <laughs> and cover report on what's gone wrong with those aging rust bucket nuclear reactors here in the United States. Two incidents at Comanche Peak in Texas, and these are unrelated to Hurricane Harvey. On August 30th, there was an unplanned loss of emergency response equipment, an event that results in a loss of emergency assessment capability, off-site response capability, or off-site communications ability all of them important, if not crucial. Two days later, on September 1st at Comanche Peak, a manual reactor trip due to two dropped rods. Oops! The incident resulted in Comanche Peak being placed on hot standby. Not good. At Jenna in upstate New York on September 2nd, there was an area radiation monitor failure which resulted in a loss of capability to classify an emergency action level. Too many more over the last three weeks to go into right now. In terms of new builds, bad news and good news. The bad news is Georgia Power has decided to press on and complete the new Vogel nuclear plant. Georgia Power said it had invested about $4.3 billion with a B dollars in the project to June 2017, and cost to complete is another $4.5 billion with a B for a total of $8.8 billion. Thus, 
it's a little curious that they cite their reason for completion being, quote, the most economic choice for customers. If there are some number crunchers out there listening to this, I'd really like to see what kind of a breakdown you could give me on it. And the better news, for the second time in a week, Duke Energy has canceled a planned nuclear project, announcing on Tuesday, August 29, that it is dropping plans to build the proposed Levy nuclear plant on Florida's Gulf Coast. That's after it canceled plans for the W.S. Lee nuclear plant in South Carolina the previous Friday. Instead, Duke unveiled plans to spend $6 billion in Florida building solar farms, installing electric vehicle charging stations, and improving the electric grid. Duke is smarter than Georgia Power, that's for sure. In Texas, word came just before Hurricane Harvey hit that Texas wind turbines have produced more electricity than its four nuclear reactors combined. The writing's on the wall. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Washington State has fined the Department of Energy a whopping $16,000 because nothing was done after some suspicious material was found at the Hanford site's Purex processing plant. Now, as a refresher course... Purex is one of five large facilities built at the nuclear reservation to chemically process irradiated uranium to remove plutonium for the nation's nuclear weapons program from World War II through the Cold War. Hanford is considered the most polluted spot in the Western Hemisphere, and the Purex processing plant was the site of a tunnel collapse on May 9th that released plutonium into the environment and led to a total site lockdown for many hours. So now, Washington State. First of all, you find something going wrong and all you find is $16,000? Ooh, ooh, that's really going to hurt them. And the EPA ignored the material that was suspicious that was left behind. It was a white powder, by the way. So what makes you think they're going to pay any attention to you saying $16,000 pay up? And I frankly don't know which one of you, the EPA for ignoring your responsibilities or Washington State for thinking that you can get some measure of satisfaction out of this. Either one of you take your pick are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. One more U.S. story, and that is that a California elementary school extracts a pound of uranium from its tap water every year. This takes place in Modesto, California, where the Westport Elementary School uses a water filtration device to ensure the water is safe for children to drink. It's a good thing, too, because they say up to a pound of uranium is filtered through the device each year which has to be retrieved by workers in masks, gloves, and other protective gear. The volatile material is then sent to a nuclear power plant for disposal. Uranium exists in the local environment underground, and it is also a farming area which uses the fertilizer potassium nitrate, which, when it comes into contact with uranium, makes it water-soluble. The school uses its own wells, so this is a logical supposition as to the source of that much uranium that consistently over time. In Japan, 
The central government has made a large number of people who voluntarily fled the Fukushima area after the 2011 nuclear disaster disappear by cutting them from official lists of evacuees. Critics condemn the move, which went into effect last April and is just being revealed now, saying it prevents the government officials from fully grasping the picture of all who remain displaced and to evaluate their future needs. According to Shun Harada, a sociology researcher at Rikkyo University in Tokyo, accurate data on Fukushima evacuees is essential in gaining a better understanding of their current circumstances and crafting measures to address their problems. When only smaller than real numbers are made available, difficulties facing evacuees could be underestimated and could result in terminating support programs for them. Exactly. In the UK, A third unexploded World War II bomb has been found in Bristol Channel near Hinkley Point, which is where nuclear power stations are located. Three bombs in three weeks. On August 8th, a 500 pound device was discovered 2.5 miles from the coast. On August 16, a 250 pound bomb was found less than half a mile from the power station. Both were destroyed in controlled explosions. Two more. Slightly elevated occurrences of thyroid cancer have been found in a 20 kilometer or 12 and a half mile zone around some nuclear plants in Belgium. And the Minerals Council of Australia has called on the Australian government to reverse legislation that effectively bans the country from developing a nuclear energy industry. Australia, as is said at the end of the movie Time Bandits, don't touch it, it's evil. We'll have today's feature interview in just a moment, but first, this, what you're hearing, is what you count on Nuclear Hot Seat to do give you the nuclear news from a different perspective. That perspective being one of we actually cover it every week in as much complexity with as much truth and humor as we possibly can. You're not going to find this information on mainstream media. We get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters with fresh information and an unrelenting spirit every week. If you find yourself wanting this information and counting on getting it here, help us out by sending a donation of any size. Just click over to nuclearhotseat.com, find the big red donate button, and click on it. For those of you on a budget who still want to make a difference, There's also a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. Truly, this will help us tremendously. So, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seed keep helping you by researching and sharing nuclear information to grow our understanding of what's really going on and what we might be able to do to change matters. Whatever you can do to help, I'm deeply grateful to you. Last week, Nuclear Hot Seat focused on the problems at the South Texas Project's two nuclear reactors. This was in the days immediately before the hurricane and the torrential floods hit South Texas. As we were recording, Bay City, which is the town right next to those reactors, was under at least 10 feet of water. And that was before it received three more days of torrential rainfall. Yet, 
the South Texas Project Management either claims directly or infers that they had absolutely no flooding as a result of Matthew. So what's the truth of it? And what do hurricanes past have to tell us about what we can expect from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the nuclear industry with present and near-term future monster weather events staring us in the face? We start off by speaking with Nancy Faust, communications manager and research team member at simplyinfo.org, which is a not-for-profit research collective that holds and manages the world's largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster. They research all things nuclear and do a bang-up job on it. We wanted to find out, was there flooding at South Texas Project, and if so, how dangerous was it, and how dangerous is it? Nancy Faust, good to have you back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great, glad to be here. Given the ongoing situation with the South Texas Project nuclear reactors, both South Texas Project and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission have claimed and continue to claim that no flooding happened at the nuclear reactor site near Bay City, when we know that Bay City was under 10 feet of water at least. How much should we trust the claim that was made of no flooding? The way I look at some of these claims is like watching a magic trick. The magician wants you to look at what he wants you to look at. And where you really should be looking is at the thing they want you to not look at. So we, anytime we see these kind of grandiose claims of everything's fine, but they provide no factual information to back that up, we go and start looking for that factual information. And when you say we, you're talking about the crew at Simply Info. Yes. We started looking at basic information from the National Weather Service, state river flooding agencies, any sort of independent information we could find off of Twitter, you know, with someone posting photos of, you know, was their house flooded? Were they caught and unable to get out of the area? We were looking at social media, you know, are people saying, you know, my house is underwater, this road is blocked. We were looking at things like Google Maps because they were indicating what county and state roads were out of commission in the area. But the bulk of the attention was on Houston because that was where the the largest part of the disaster and all the people mainly were. So we were finding lots of information about Houston and finding less and less information about the area in Matagorda County. As you were looking What specifically were you checking for? We were checking the river along the area, trying to find out when the river started rising, because that was one concern is that the river would cause flooding near the plant, because the plant is really close to the Colorado River. We were also trying to find information, you know, was there flooding, just general ground flooding from all the rain that got dumped on the area. The University of California at Davis produced some radar satellite imagery from August 29th, which they indicated was around the peak of the flooding. What they found was some widespread localized patchy flooding in the area of the plant. It also showed that all the roads in and out of the plant, including the county roads, were flooded. Parts of the plant were underwater. Roads within the interior of the plant were underwater, and the switchyard at the plant was flooded. When you say parts of the plant were underwater, are you talking about containment structure the bu- and the building around it where the reactors are? 
this was kind of where the power company was splitting hairs and being a little bit deceptive. The area where the reactor, the two reactors actually sit is on about six feet of earth that is built up, and then they're sitting on that. The rest of the plant is at the normal ground level. And it's those areas in the normal ground level that were experiencing the flooding. So technically, the reactors were not underwater. But important parts of the plant were, and this still matters. How would that kind of flooding compromise or potentially compromise the operation of South Texas Project 2 nuclear reactors? One area that's of particular concern is called the switchyard. And what this is, is this is where all of the incoming and outgoing electrical systems meet. You'll have uh, large amounts of transformers, power lines, all of the control equipment that sends all of that power out to the grid and also brings in power that's needed to the plant sits in that switchyard. So if the switchyard floods, they run the risk of either losing the ability to send out power, which causes the reactors into a forced shutdown, or it can make them lose incoming power, which is critical to the plant. Every nuclear reactor needs to have incoming grid power in order to safely operate. When they lose grid power, they then have to switch over to diesel generators. And if those diesel generators don't continue to run, if they fail or fail to start, or they run out of diesel fuel, then they're in what's called a station blackout. And that's when you start getting into some very dangerous situations. With the roads flooded, what does this do to access? Should they need any assistance from the outside world or need to get out? They were basically cut off. Uh, the Google Maps County roads were officially closed. The flooding maps from UC Davis confirmed that, that these roads were underwater. Also, there were roads inside the plant underwater. So if they needed to go deal with something like the water intakes that they need for cooling water, they only had one road that could get them there. And they were unable to get to other parts of the plant. So certain parts of the plant that even if they weren't critical systems, they were still cut off from that. So if there were supplies over there, they're going to have to figure out a way to get through flood water to try to reach supplies inside the plant grounds. But what makes this even worse is if there was a serious emergency at the plant, they cannot get in outside fire service. They can't get in outside governmental assistance. And if anyone remembers what happened with Fukushima, you had local fire department, you had Tokyo's fire department trying to get in there. You had the military trying to get in there. You had other nuclear workers trying to get in there. And the area was so cut off between the leftovers of the earthquake and the tsunami that it was extremely difficult. And it took them days to finally be able to kind of get equipment in there. So when you're looking at what happened in Texas, when the roads are all flooded, you can't get those needed people and supplies in. Also, because of how widespread the problem was throughout that area of Texas, all of those resources were busy trying to help in the communities that were underwater. How great a risk do you think was taken by South Texas Project and the NRC in allowing the plant to continue to operate during this emergency? The initial concern was the fact that they were operating through landfall of the hurricane. And they cited different uh, wind levels saying, well, if it reached 73 miles an hour sustained winds or 135 mile an hour gusts, then we'll shut down the plant but they were going to wait until those happened before they shut down the plant, which would have made them shutting down in the middle of a hurricane, which increases all sorts of risks. At that point, no one can go outside if there's some physical response to a piece of equipment needed outside. You just can't go outside in that. Also, any of these other risks are now risks happening in the middle of a hurricane. 
the NRC used to be pretty proactive about encouraging plants that were known to be near landfall that was coming to shut down ahead of it. And for some reason, this plant was able to not do that. And the sustained winds they cited, there were places when Hurricane Katrina made landfall that would not have met that sustained wind measure they were using as their shutdown. So it sounds like they were playing, as the term has been used, Russian roulette with whether or not we were going to get through this without a major nuclear accident. Correct. I've considered it a game of nuclear chicken, and that really was kind of what they were playing. And statements out of the power company gave the impression that they seen the idea of a proactive shutdown to be safe as some sort of fear or a weakness. And that mentality coming out of the power company that is supposed to be keeping people safe and professionally managing this plant was very concerning. The nuclear industry also took to the media last week. There was a major press release that did come out warning about the dangers. That was a combined effort of Beyond Nuclear, the Seed Coalition, and South Texas Association for Responsible Energy. And what the nuclear industry did immediately through some of its mouthpiece organs, such as, as Forbes, put out, isn't it wonderful that nuclear kept running during this emergency when solar could not have done anything about it, as though they were taking pride and they were using this as a positive talking point. What's wrong with that equivalency? It's a very weird kind of place they were going. It, and it was, it was that, you know, we're playing a game of chicken and we won. But what if you lost? And the only reason they were bragging is because they got lucky and didn't experience a problem through this. But they were doing some extreme risk taking. And they tend to not mention the fact that they took a pretty serious risk with this. And the consequences of that risk are pretty high. Getting back to the sources of water, there was, of course, that torrential rainfall coming down. In places, there was storm surge coming in from the ocean. And then there was the ongoing concern when last we spoke of the cresting waters from the Colorado River. How high did that crest and how much did that contribute to the flooding? It contributed somewhat. Uh, in looking at the UC Davis radar maps, there was some spillover from the river. It was not apparently the cause of most of the problematic flooding at the plant. That was caused by the torrential rains. So the Colorado did pose a problem. They were expecting a crest of about 50 feet. Uh, they ended up with a crest of about 47 feet. So it didn't quite go as high as uh, the weather prediction thought it was going to, which is good, and it is now trailing back down. When we looked last night, both of the river gauges we had been watching went out of the red flood zone and down into the yellow caution zone. So the river levels are going down. So as far as that is a risk, it ha that has abated and that is going away. So as long as they don't have some other big rain event, that should continue to go down and continue to not be a problem. And we expect the standing water to eventually you know, soak in, run away, evaporate. So you know, they will eventually dry out. Are the people still trapped there within the reactor or has access been reestablished? That we don't know. The last information we received was that the power company was before the water had started to go down and they were basically saying, yeah, we survived the storm and we're flipping burgers and claimed everything was dry and posted two photos without any dates on them. 
And a number of people looked at those photos and thought they were rather suspicious because they looked incredibly dry, almost drought-like. So I looked at the computer data that goes with a digital photograph, and both photos had no date on them. And then a photo that they had provided to Bloomberg was dated as 2009. So there has been no actual photographic evidence from around the plant. It would be interesting to get a drone in there if such things are allowed to be flown in this weather over the plant just to get some visuals on it. What would you like to see come out of this in terms of dialogue, discussion, demand, further dealings with the NRC over the way that they basically abrogated their responsibility? They just kind of hung out in what looks good to us without any kind of updates, any kind of information posted on the NRC site. There's a couple of things, and we saw this with Hurricane Sandy also. There was this dearth of information. Frequently, hurricanes, for some reason, seem to hit on the weekend. The NRC, even their office in D.C., seems to close up for the weekend, so there's literally no information between Friday and Monday. With Hurricane Sandy, we did see a few reports out of the NRC following up on that next workday when they were all back in the office. With this hurricane down in Texas, there's been nothing out of the NRC about this. So that's concerning. The NRC really should be giving public updates, even if it's to say there has been no problem in this situation. They need to be giving people information on a regular basis when there's an incident like this where a nuclear plant is facing a severe weather hazard. And another problem that has been evolving over the years is the NRC has ceded more and more rulemaking to the individual power companies that run the reactor. And the claim has been that the company that runs the plant knows the uniqueness about this plant, and so they've let these companies take the lead more and more. So instead of the NRC saying, if it's a Category 3 or above hurricane, you're shutting down ahead of it. That's not happening, but that would be a good start because then there's some way of knowing that, hey, this is severe enough that you need to act and you can't play chicken with it and then brag about it on the Internet. Given that the worst seems to be over for now and fingers crossed that there are no more hurricanes or no more incidents like this coming. What do you think can be the ultimate outcome of this? Are there places where we, the public who are concerned about these issues, can push either the NRC or probably less likely South Texas Project, but push for something as categorical as Category 3 or higher, you shut down immediately, that's the end of the discussion. Ideally, a push for some blanket laws with the NRC that require a shutdown in certain circumstances would be ideal. Another way to try to help move things in that direction would be at the state level. I know Massachusetts has had some success in pushing the reactors in their state to enact more safety. So the NRC may be a good way to try to get a good rule going on, but having the state back that up will certainly help. So I think people should look at both the NRC and at state level. What can you do there to help get the state on board? And that would be a state-by-state basis, meaning people in Texas should go after South Texas Project, or is there any way that those of us in other states can work to support them as well? 
if you're not in the state that's having the issue, I think people can still give some input, especially if it's something where they have an extensive amount of research or deal with it professionally, to help inform those state-level people what's going on. Because many times someone that works at a state agency doesn't have that breadth of knowledge. They deal with what they deal with every day. So when someone brings something like this to their attention, helping educate them with factual information that they can read and inform themselves of why you're calling and saying it's an issue is certainly going to help. And we found this in South Dakota as we were facing the borehole nuclear dump. Many of the people that were in decision-making roles didn't understand the breadth of the problem. So a lot of it is helping to educate these state-level people so they understand why you're concerned. And, of course, one of the best sources for people who want fact-based information with all the footnotes in place is to go to simplyinfo.org or your other site, fukuleaks.org, and see the information that's there and direct people in authority to check them out because this is fact-based, it's sourced, and you guys cross your T's, dot your I's, and put the punctuation in the right places. Yep, that would be what we wanted to do. Nancy, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on as our solid source on this information. And thanks for coming back with us this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Great. Thanks for having me. Anytime, Nancy. Anytime. Nancy Faust of simplyinfo.org. As of this updated recording, made on Wednesday morning, September 6th, there has still been no update or event report from the NRC regarding South Texas Project. And now we're facing Hurricane Irma, which is currently believed to be on course to make landfall this weekend in Miami-Dade County, home of the Turkey Point Nuclear Power Station and its two nuclear reactors. Irma could also hit further up the coast at the St. Lucie Nuclear Power Station with its two reactors, 123 miles north of Miami, and 55 miles north of West Palm Beach. Let's create a little historical context for these two nuclear facilities and weather events, starting with St. Lucie. In 1969, when Hurricane Camille made landfall in Florida, there were no nuclear power stations along the Gulf Coast, nor were there nuclear power stations along the Florida coast. Thus, these nuclear power stations were built with full knowledge of the potential risks. Camille made landfall with an estimated sustained winds of up to 190, that's 190 miles per hour, and gusts exceeding 230 miles per hour. It had a storm surge of 24 to 28 feet. So why then was St. Lucie Nuclear Power Station in 1970 one year after Hurricane Camille, granted a construction permit for a facility that would only withstand extreme winds of up to 120 miles per hour, as opposed to the 190 to 230 of Camille, and a wave run-up of 17.2 feet when Camille had a storm surge of 24 to 28 feet. Did they think the situation was never going to be able to duplicate itself? Further, St. Lucie Nuclear Power Station is built on a thin barrier island off the mainland and surrounded by water. It is not on continental U.S. It's on a sandbar. According to the U.S. Geological Service, 
surge heights on the mainland may not accurately reflect surge heights on the barrier islands, meaning that it's going to be higher on the islands than on the mainland. How St. Lucie ever got that permit and was allowed to be built is anybody's question. But it's there, it exists, and it has to be dealt with. And thus far, we have heard nothing from the NRC. Just one year ago, the circumstance was very different for Hurricane Matthew. As soon as a hurricane warning was issued, the NRC declared an unusual event, the first of its four levels of warning when there is danger involving a nuclear reactor. Two days later, the NRC issued a press release on Hurricane Matthew preparations, including personnel it had dispatched and protective measures that had been taken. At this point, as has been said before, we have heard nothing about the aftermath of Harvey, and we're hearing nothing in the run-up to Irma. This from the agency that is tasked with protecting people and the environment from nuclear problems. As for Turkey Point, which has two nuclear reactors that service the Miami-Dade area, in 1992, Hurricane Andrew caused the Turkey Point nuclear reactors to lose access to the grid and grid power for more than six days. This is called a station blackout, and when that happens at a nuclear facility, it can account for as much as 88% of the chance of reactor core damage in a year. This according to NRC records. Sidebar. Nuclear reactors do not generate their own electricity. They have to pull electricity from a functioning grid in order to back up their operations. Indeed, if you have ever seen the warning sirens, which are planted around nuclear stations, you will find that they all have a reliable, consistent source of energy in order to fuel them. Each one is attached to a solar panel. Sidebar over. After the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster began on March 11 of 2011, the Miami News Times published an article, Five Reasons Turkey Point Could Be the Next Nuclear Disaster. The article noted, Just like in Japan, Turkey Point is susceptible to a meltdown caused by a natural disaster. A hurricane-spurred tidal surge from Turkey Point's neighboring Biscayne Bay could create catastrophic conditions identical to those in Japan. With power down, and remember this is grid power, the plant would be forced to rely on emergency diesel generators to pump water to cool the reactors. Those generators would certainly become inundated with water from the tidal surge, causing them to drown and fail to which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, even if they didn't drown and fail, how much diesel do they have available and how long before they would run out and how long before that grid power would be put back online? Now that area of the coast, and possibly further north up to South Carolina and beyond, are facing Irma, which is already a Category 5 hurricane, has been predicted to perhaps become a Category 6, which is a category that hasn't even existed until now. It has been tracked at 1,000 miles across 
and is currently slamming into islands in the Caribbean. We have no idea where this is going, but one thing is for sure, there needs to be more of a proactive protective response taking place by Florida Power and Light, by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and by Governor Rick Scott's office. There needs to be, as has been suggested by Nancy Faust and many others, an absolute rule that if a Category 3 or higher hurricane is predicted and projected to intersect with land in proximity with a nuclear reactor, that you shut the bugger down. An ounce of prevention is worth, well, there's no amount of cure once there's a breach at a nuclear reactor as Fukushima and Chernobyl have taught us only too well. Simply Info has compiled a list of places to contact, phone numbers, email addresses, ways to put pressure on the institutions that are capable of forcing a shutdown of those nuclear reactors during the storm dangers. You can find it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 324. You can also find it with Coalition Against Nukes on Facebook and at simplyinfo.org. Late-breaking update. Just as this show is about to be posted and made available, we have learned that there is some talk now that the nuclear reactors in Florida are going to be shut down, but the wording is still vague and not verified. According to an article that was in Bloomberg.com, Peter Robbins, a spokesperson for Florida Power and Light, said shutting down a reactor is a gradual process, we know that, and the decision will be made, quote, well in advance, end quote, of the storm making landfall, though there was no definition of what the phrase well in advance meant. Mr. Robbins went on to say, if we anticipate there will be direct impacts on either facility, we'll shut down the units. Which begs the question, what will it take for you to anticipate that there's a problem? And what do you mean by direct impact? So that we know exactly what the criterion is for you to decide to shut down this nuclear reactor. Again, to my listeners... This is the reason why we need an absolute mandated rule from the NRC that once a hurricane heading for landfall near a nuclear reactor hits Category 3, you shut them down. No question, no equivocation, no wondering if you can do it or not. Just do it. Activist shout-out. And there are two sad announcements this week. The Honorable Tony DeBrum, Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Republic of Marshall Islands, has passed away. He grew up on the island of Likiep, and while he was still a child, the United States, which was the colonial power in the Marshall Islands at the time, conducted a program of 67 nuclear tests that saw many hundreds of Marshallese displaced from their atolls as they were blown up and irradiated. De Bruyne recalled viewing the mother of these explosions, the 1954 Bravo shot, while fishing with his grandfather 200 files away. They were suddenly blinded as if the sun had grown across the entire sky. With the force of 1,000 Hiroshima bombs, 
The Bravo test reshaped Bikini Atoll and De Broom's life forever. De Broom was one of the first Marshall Islanders to graduate from university and became his country's chief negotiator in their attempt to receive fair reparations for the annihilation and poisoning of their land. He is featured prominently in the film Nuclear Savage. He was 72 years old. And Sumitiro Taniguchi, a Nagasaki atomic bombing survivor who dedicated his life to pushing for a nuclear-free world, passed away from cancer on August 30th. Taniguchi felt responsible as the face of A-bomb survivors. That's because footage and photos of a young Taganuchi, whose entire back had been burned by the bomb, has been seen around the world. In 2015, 70 years after the bombing, there was talk of Taniguchi being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work talking about his experiences and calling for peace. He was 88 years old. Sumitiro Taniguchi was a man of action. He constantly asked himself the role he was to fulfill, a question each of us deserves to be asking ourselves. And that's why, in his honor, and in honor of a future that we would like to see, you and I and everyone deserve to check out the materials that are now available to help us to get our governments to sign and ratify the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty that was passed by the UN General Assembly. For the first time in history, nuclear weapons will be ruled unlawful and prohibited, just as the world has done for other weapons of mass destruction, such as biological and chemical weapons. Although the nine nuclear weapons states and their partners in the U.S. Nuclear Alliance in NATO, as well as Japan, Australia, and South Korea, did not support the negotiations, the non-nuclear weapons states took the lead to make this new treaty to ban the bomb a reality, with 122 countries signing its passage. The treaty now requires 50 5-0 countries to sign and ratify it before it enters into legal force, and it will be open for signatures at the UN General Assembly in New York on September 20, 2017. Now there is a signing kit prepared by the UN Office for Disarmament Affairs to help you take effective action to enroll your government to sign and ratify the treaty. You can download a copy from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, or you can go to NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 324, and we will also have a link. Here's today's final thought. Between last week's interviewee Susan Dancer needing to evacuate from the floods of Hurricane Harvey, and me in mandatory evacuation over the weekend from the Los Angeles fire that came way too close to my doorstep, I'm thinking of forming a singing duo with Susan called Evacuated Anti-Nuclear Activists and start by recording the song Fire and Rain. Oh, I've seen fire, I've seen rain. Yeah, haven't we just? Okay, okay, I got that one out of my system, and here's the real final thought. So South Texas Project ducked the Hurricane Harvey bullet and, as predicted on this show last week, turned their risk-taking behavior, 
that of keeping the reactors running at 100% during torrential rains and hurricane force winds, they turned that into PR bragging rights, like they did something wonderful and heroic, to which I can only say, balderdash. They had flooding, as you heard earlier in this program. The roads were blocked. They didn't have access to all of their buildings. There was no access to the facility, in or out. They just got lucky. Now, do we really want luck to be the determining factor when a nuclear reactor meets force majeure, an act of God or nature? Do we want to risk South Texas Project's recklessness and the NRC's impotent lack of prudence to become the role models for how to handle nuclear reactors during hurricanes, torrential rains, storm surges, and hurricane force winds? A reflection on the tenuous nature and thin line that separates safety from catastrophe in nuclear matters can be found in a poem that I found online last week. It's called Only by Tim Richards. It's a reflection on Fukushima, and it is used here by permission of the author. Only. Only it wasn't the earthquake that caused the problem as the reactors shut down. It was only the loss of electricity to circulate the cooling water that was the problem. Only normally it would not have mattered as we have backup generators. Only the tsunami flooded them. But we still had batteries. But they only lasted a day before they ran out and the reactors overheated. Only we had to vent some radioactive steam to stop an explosion. And it was only a hydrogen explosion in reactor number one. Well, reactors two and three as well. But they only blew out a bit of the roof. And the containers didn't break. Only they did start to melt down. But not all the way. It was not a problem as we only had to hose them down with seawater to keep the temperatures down, and only a small amount of radioactive water flowed into the ground, and only a little radioactivity was spread around in the local areas. The evacuation zone was only 10 kilometers at the start, and it only became 20 to 30 kilometers later. And only some radioactivity escaped further, so we only needed to evacuate 200,000 people. Only the anti-nuclear people made it sound worse, as they are the only people campaigning to stop us building more. But only 4,600 have died from the Chernobyl disaster, as the regulators only count the levels of radioactivity released in doses. So only some of the cancers could be blamed on that, as we only use the official estimates, not the actual number of cancer deaths. Only we have all the knowledge, so you can only trust us for the truth about nuclear power. It's the official story. Do you? To which we add, do you trust the official story on nuclear power? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 5, 2017. 
Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, dailymail.co.uk, dianuke.org, New York Times, express.co.uk, bbc.com, Washington Post, former President Jimmy Carter on Facebook, Bob Alvarez, miningawareness.wordpress.com, eastcountrymagazine.org, envirorreporter.com, rocketdynecleanupcoalition.org, dailymail.co.uk, themindunleashed.com, try-cityherald.com, wfae.org, asahi.com, theguardian.com, enenews.com, devonlive.com, nieuws.com, udf.by, mainichi.jp, climatechangenews.com, abolition2000.org, the soul-dead cubicle drones who never fulfilled their early creative promise because they sold out to write for World Nuclear News. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports. A shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers for your awareness, your support, and your love of this planet. And my thanks to everyone for gathering on one of the two Nuclear Hot Seat sites, either the blog site or the podcast site. They're both on Facebook. So be sure to stop by. Click like, friend us, post, and share. And if you know of a broadcast station in your area that would be interested in carrying Nuclear Hot Seat and joining our growing network of affiliates, have them get in contact by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues from around the world, the stuff that mainstream media won't touch, delivered with as much humor as possible? Take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you once again that the last thing any anti-nuclear activist ever wants to be able to say is, I told you so. So let's hope our luck holds with Irma. Now, you've just had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't you go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.